This is the Amazing Starts Here podcast. That's Billy Harner. My name is Keith Rad. We usually delve into the Mets minor leagues, but today we make a little bit of a left turn to talk to Bob Kendrick, the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City. This kind of came into the forefront for both Billy and I recently as the Mets opened up our eyes with a movie called The Other Boys of Summer. Now, you don't need to have to watch that movie to listen to this episode. It just kind of gets you in that frame of mind of Negro Leagues history. And Billy, we we ended up talking to Bob for probably four or five days. It felt like that because he was so amazing. He has so many stories. If you're a baseball history lover of any kind, the next 40 minutes will be quite something. When I was in college, I, I read a book called Only the Ball Was White, and it was about the Negro Leagues as part of one of the uh, literature classes that I was in. And the stories in there are so just mind-blowing and interesting, and just the story of the Negro Leagues in general um, are such a triumph over tragedy sort of thing. It's such a terrible chapter of our history, um, but the love of the game just came through and the uh, impact that it's had on sports and society uh, at the time and then going forward is just unbelievable so we literally could have talked to him for another six hours and i wouldn't have even blinked um it, it's it's such an interesting chapter of american history and there is nobody probably in the world who knows as much about the negro leagues as bob does so uh strap in sit down relax and then prepare to start googling away because he's going to tell stories and you're going to hear things that are going to make you want to keep going and your uh your thirst is just beginning for negro league knowledge it's bob kendrick coming up on amazing starts here first things first bob uh you work eat sleep and breathe baseball how cool is your job you know it's pretty cool it really is i'm not gonna lie it's a tremendous blessing to do the work that I do here. And this started as a passion project for me as a volunteer for this organization in 1993. So I've had an affiliation with the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum for nearly 28 years now. And it is genuinely a labor of love. And so there are days, fellas, where I cannot believe that I get paid to do the work that I do. Now, granted, there are some days where they don't pay me enough to do the work that I do, <laughs> but fortunately, there are far more of the former than the latter. And, and no, but every day that I walk into this building and my office sits right above where the museum is, it's just a joy. I think we all understand that we're doing something that is bigger than we are, and, and hopefully we'll do it right so that it will stand the test of time. The other day, uh, the Mets employees got a chance to watch a movie called The Other Boys of Summer, which is a uh, a movie that you you know about well. It mm-hmm. It is a, a, Lauren, a Lauren Meyer documentary about the Negro Leagues. And Dom Smith and Curtis Granderson spoke, along with Omar Minaya, spoke to some of the Mets employees about just what it's like reacting to the movie and, and the Negro League history, which Billy and I are huge history buffs. So... I know that some of our audience may not have seen the movie, but the history of the Negro Leagues has kind of become uh, brought to the forefront recently. So what? how have you seen the museum touch the audience, uh, the baseball world in the last few years in, in different ways? Well, number one, I think the public is growing increasingly more interested in Negro Leagues history. And I certainly hope and believe 
that the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum has had a great hand in helping elevate the awareness of this wonderful piece of baseball and Americana. I've oftentimes said, and I wholeheartedly believe this, I don't think there was ever a time that people didn't want to know about the history of the Negro Leagues. Guys, they just simply had no way to know about it. It's not in the pages of American history books. So it's never been fully documented through the annals of American history. And, and so this museum comes along now almost 31 years ago to start to tell this story, to start to bring this story to life, to preserve, to celebrate, to educate the public about this incredible story of triumph over adversity and is all built around a passion for our game, our national pastime. And yet so many did not know anything about this incredible story. And so we've seen this interest really grow. I think our partnership with Major League Baseball and Major League Baseball's Players Association continue to help elevate and amplify this story to a great degree. And I just hope that people continue, just like I did, to fall in love with the story of the Negro League. I tell people all the time, what's not to love about the story once you delve into it? Yeah, so that's where we're going to start off with, with my love for it, because I love the uh, the marketing, the promotion aspect of it. And it, it's sort of like, um, you know, like a, like a WWE wrestler type of thing, is some of these guys <laughs> with the, the backstories that they have and sort of the folklore that goes along with it. You know, I was talking to Keith uh, earlier about some of our uh, plans for what we we're going to talk about. And I was trying to edit myself down to my favorite stories that you hear about guys. And my, my first one, I'll start with Bruce Petway and Ty Cobb, where Bruce Petway supposedly threw him out at first base on a bunt and then threw him out stealing second base. And Ty Cobb was so angry. He went to the umpires and made them remeasure the bases to make sure it was the right stuff. <laughs> I mean, that's the kind of stuff where you hear that story. If you don't know anything else about Negro League Baseball, how do you not just delve into a deep dive on the Internet to find out more? And, and you know, I don't ever want to lose those stories. And, and I know our game is a beautiful game of comparisons and statistics. And, and statistics drive so much of, of baseball. It's a game of numbers. But man, the lore and the legend around these athletes who sometimes appear to be larger than life, I don't ever want to lose that. And, and so the stories that Buck O'Neill and Monty Irvin and others told, I want those stories to live on forever. You know, Josh Gibson was larger than life, you know, and he was kind of our John Henry. You know, Babe Ruth was Paul Bunyan and, and, and Josh Gibson was John Henry. You know, he, he was a hammering <laughs> man. And, and I don't want to lose that. We We want people to, when they think about and visualize Josh Gibson as this massive mammoth human being because he was. You know, he's 6'1", 225, absolutely chiseled. I tell people all the time, if you want to think physically, his, his physique, think Bo Jackson as a catcher, and you got Josh Gibson. Wow. And, and I can understand why people <laughs> would not necessarily believe that because if we hadn't seen Bo Jackson if that wasn't video of Bo Jackson, someone somewhere would say, oh, those feats that he did, they never happened. He never threw a guy out from the water track on the fly at home plate. He didn't run up the wall and then run back down the wall because we wouldn't have seen it. And that's kind of how it is with the heroes of the Negro League. We didn't see it, 
So we don't necessarily want to believe it, even though credible sources like Buck O'Neill and Monty Irvin and others told us, they provided this oral history. This, you can envision what these almost mythical-like players were like. Yeah, so, so my, my follow-up to that was just the, uh, I had never thought of it that way. When you're, you're talking about you would never believe you know, Bo Jackson and the things he did, or, uh, you know, when you look at guys like LeBron James and what they're doing in, in sports currently, if you didn't have the video of them now, you wouldn't believe it. But, you know, that's why that's, that's, that's a, a very unique way of thinking about it. That's, that's, that's very interesting. Uh, but you, you touched briefly on, you know, the, the stats and the connection with, with major league baseball. And obviously that's been um, a relatively new uh, development within the partnership of major league baseball and, and Negro league baseball and getting those stats included in, the official records for, for major league baseball, but how difficult of a process uh, is that, or was that in terms of being able to get all this statistical information um, when the, the league itself was barnstorming and playing in, in all over the place. So how difficult of a, of a process was that? Oh, it was challenging. It absolutely was challenging. Now I'm not going to say it was a needle in the haystack, but it damn near was. <laughs> and those researchers and historians who have gone through and unearthed this material to the standpoint that they could provide enough quantifiable data that led us to this historic announcement in December, I can't help but tip my cap to them. Because, you know, really, if they weren't playing in a town that offered black press, it was hard to get this information documented. It wasn't that they didn't keep it. It was just that so much of it was lost to time. And so they've got to go back now and, and, and really do a deep dive to go unearth this information. And they've done a yeoman's, yeoman's duty in order to pull together what they've pulled together. And as much as they've pulled together, there's still a part of me that believes that there's still that much more left out there. And the stats, though, you can never reduce the Negro Leagues to statistical data. You just can't. And the stats won't tell you everything. The stats will provide you context. And that's what it does for me. It is more contextual than anything else. But the stats won't show that J.L. Wilkinson, who owned the Kansas City Monarchs, bought a plane in 1943 so that he could fly Satchel to pitch for other teams and then fly him back to join the Monarchs. Satchel was literally a hired hand. So that's it. Those, those numbers will never be part of the statistical quantification of the Negro League. <laughs> you know, and, and all those barnstorming games that they played. Because I have to remind people that they didn't play in the Negro Leagues because they wanted to play in the Negro Leagues. They played in the Negro Leagues because they had to play in the Negro Leagues. And so in my mind, every game they played was significant whether it was against the local town teams or if it's head-to-head against the major leaguers or if there's official league games, in my mind, they're all great. So the, the official numbers may not show Josh Gibson hitting 800 home runs or whatever the number might be. Doesn't mean it didn't happen. You know, it just means that it happened against all level of competition, including major leaguers. But they were playing who they could play because they were playing the way they had to play. 
So I was reading uh, this, this book that just came out called Yogi by John Passa, and he talks about Yogi Berra and, and coming up with Elston Howard mm-hmm. and the, the, the white-black segregation that was changed by Jackie in 1947. And he said in the book, uh, especially about Negro League stats, and the, the, the question would be, hey, you know, were these guys really that good? And he points to, you know, Jackie comes into the big leagues in 1947 – and in the National League, from like 1950 to 1960, like every National League MVP was <laughs> from the Negro League. So it's like, were they good? Uh, they were the best in the league. You know what I mean? And that gives you a perspective of the immediate impact. And the reason you didn't see this happening in the American League was that the American League was just so slow to sign black ball players. The American League really didn't want black ball players. You know, that's why Boston was the last. The Yankees were reluctant. But you also have to understand the Yankees' reluctancy wasn't just necessary because they didn't want a black ball player. They really didn't want to put the Negro Leagues out of business because they were making money from the Negro Leagues. The Negro League teams were renting Yankee facilities. We, we got a set of letters that we, we uh, picked up at an auction a few years ago that was written by Larry McPhail. And who was at that time the president of the Yankees. And the letter basically spells out, Mayor LaGuardia was putting a lot of pressure on the Yankees to break this, you know, to that Major League Baseball needed to stop this nonsense of segregation in its game. They were putting a, and so Mayor LaGuardia had written the Yankees and there was this groundswell before integration started to grow. And in the, this letter that MacPhail writes to Mayor LaGuardia, he basically says, well, you know, if we sign a black ball player, we are in essence going to put the Negro Leagues out of business. He's absolutely right. Then in the next breath, he say, well, you know, they lack the faculties to play in our league. But then he finally gets to the crux of it. In 1945, the New York Yankees made over $100,000 from Negro League teams uh, because they were renting Yankee Stadium. They were renting Bears Stadium across the river in New Jersey, and they were renting Blues Stadium here in Kansas City. $100,000 is pretty good money today. $100,000 in 1945, and you didn't have to do any heavy lifting to get it. So you can understand why the Yankees were in no hurry to see integration. And, and so they signed Ellie, Elston Howard, who had played here for the Kansas City Monarchs. As a matter of fact, Elston and the great Ernie Banks were roommates and teammates with Kansas City Monarchs. Uh-huh. And, and so, you know, Ellie was, as you know, converted to a catcher because Ellie played multiple positions for the Monarchs. Great athlete. He's been a football player in high school, had turned down an opportunity to go to Ohio State to play football, to come here to play for the Kansas City Monarchs. So he was an outstanding athlete, and, and he becomes the AL's first MVP. But again, the AL was just so slow going after Negro League players. And you're right, Keith, you know, from 1949 until 1959, nine of 11 National League most valuable players were former Negro League stars. So there was no doubt about their ability to play this game, man. And the influx of talent 
that you saw from 1947 until the early 1960s, Major League Baseball saw its largest collection of talent at any one single time span in the history of its sport. And the more majority of those players were former Negro League stars. So while you were talking about the the American League sort of being uh, late to the game, another thing of the Negro Leagues that is very interesting to me is they seem to be decades ahead of the curve uh, in, in terms of things that we're talking about now with having women playing in the league themselves and having the first night games long before uh, the major leagues were having night games and player safety and things like that. You know, the, the, the Negro leagues had black owners, which is something that has been trailing behind in other sports for years and years and decades. And I uh, just wanted to dis- discuss a little bit the, the importance of not just on the field, but what they've done off the field in terms of uh, building up black businesses and, 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 and ownership and, and things like that. Well, and that's what we talk about when we talk about the prevalence of what the Negro Leagues represented both on and off the field. You kind of reference some of the innovations that came out of the Negro Leagues. Shin guards, the batting helmet, night baseball. The Negro Leagues would introduce night baseball five years before the Major Leagues did. And as you both know, our history book will say that the first Major League Baseball night game was 1935, Crossley Field, Cincinnati, Ohio, Cincinnati Reds versus the Philadelphia Phillies. Well, the history book is wrong. The first professional night baseball game, 1930, and it featured our very own Kansas City Monarchs. J.O. Wilkinson, who owned the Monarchs, literally mortgaged everything he had to pioneer night baseball. Portable, generated light towers. So not only could they play a night game here in Kansas City, they could load them up on the truck and play a night game virtually anywhere. And, and truth of the matter is, guys, J.O. Wilkinson wasn't doing this to be innovative. He was doing it for survival. You see, back then, the Negro Leagues were primarily relegated to playing on Sundays. Major League Baseball really didn't play on Sundays a lot, so the Negro Leagues would rent the ballpark, play that Sunday doubleheader. We left church, going straight to the ballpark, dressed to the nines, as they would say, looking good. And so he was looking for a way to get the working class fans into the ballpark. And night baseball became the answer. Night baseball became bigger than Sunday games. And Sunday games were so popular that black churches would move their service time up an hour. Now, if you know anything about the black church, you don't mess with service time, man. The o'clock Sunday go to meeting when the Monarchs were at home or the Newark Eagles were at home or the New York Black Yankees were at home. Service would start at 10 o'clock and then everybody filed out going to that Sunday doubleheader and night baseball was even bigger than that. And, and so, but would you know what I find, Billy, from those who come to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, we want the truth. We really do. We want the truth. And and the truth has been hidden because American historians have done us all a tremendous disservice. They kept this wonderful chapter of baseball and Americana away from us. And, And we must understand that there are gaps in the pages of American history books. There are so many who have contributed to the greatness of this country And their stories have really never been told, at least not in their proper perspective. 
That's why cultural institutions like the Negro Leagues Museum are so important and so tremendously valuable. And then you touched on the economic aspect of what this story is all about. For me, there are three key things that are connected to the Negro Leagues beyond the tremendous collection of talent that call the Negro Leagues home. You see, this is a story about the importance of economic empowerment. This is a story about an unprecedented level of leadership that emerged as a result of the formation of these leagues. And then ultimately, ultimately, this is the story of the social advancement of America as Jackie Robinson is handpicked from the great Kansas City monarchs to break baseball's six-decade-long self-imposed color barrier. And so you're absolutely right, Billy. Wherever you had successful Black baseball, you had thriving Black economies. And, and right where the Negro Leagues Museum is located, historic 18th and Vine. Oh, man. You know, to hear the stories of 18th and Vine, you should have seen it. Now, I guess the closest thing to 18th and Vine would have been Harlem during the Renaissance. This place, they tell me, was absolutely jumping. The late great Buck O'Neill says, if you had a relative that stayed in Kansas City and you hadn't seen him for a while, but you came to visit, all you had to do was stand on the corner of 18th and Vine on a Saturday night. They got to walk by there. And, and so it was jumping. It was a cultural crossroads where jazz and baseball intersected. But because of segregation, it created all of these I guess, mandated Black-owned businesses. You know, you, you you had to have them. And so here in Kansas City, Black folks could only move within a 13-block race. And you couldn't go outside of 13 blocks. But within 13 blocks, you had everything you needed. Yeah, everything. And so the place was jumping. I have a question about uh, Jackie Robinson. We, we touched on the movie The Other Boys of Summer a little bit earlier. Now, of course, we're in Brooklyn, so we know the importance of Jackie and the Dodgers. But in the movie, mm-hmm. we hear that you know Jackie comes from the Kansas City Monarchs, but he's not the best player. So how many players in the Negro Leagues could have been Jackie Robinson, forever known. I'm not taking anything away from Jackie at all, but how many other players would have been the guy to remember forever to break the color barrier? Well, there were several guys that I think could have done what Jackie did. But what you have to understand is that the first guy cannot fail. Hmm. If the first guy fails, there is no second guy. And so it's too difficult to make a pitcher the first guy. So many thought Satchel could have been the first. And honestly, I'm not sure Satchel would have dealt with as much of the overt racism that Jackie dealt with because Satchel was a known commodity. He was a baseball superstar. And so white fans knew who Satchel Page was. But Satchel, number one, a pitcher, there's too great a risk that a pitcher can fail. Number two, we don't know how old Satchel really was. <laughs> And Satchel was probably a little too charismatic to be that first guy, you know, because there was this stereotypical depiction of what African-American athletes were like. And so, you know, my dear friend, late great Monty Irving, who is featured in the other boys of summer, certainly could have been the first. As a matter of fact, 
he was the guy who had been targeted to be the first. Monty had been a superstar in the Negro Leagues. There was nothing that Monty Irvin could not do on the baseball field. He too was college educated. He had served in the military. He had movie star good looks. You know, so he had star written all over him. So yeah, he could have done it. And, and Monty, Branch Ricky had his eyes on Monty, Monty Irvin. And Monty had just gotten back from World War II. And Monty, guys, was suffering from what they then call shelf shock. Today, we would call it post-traumatic syndrome. And so he knew he needed to get his mind and body right before trying to take on this almost insurmountable task. And he was having contract squabbles with Effa Manley, who owned the Newark Eagles. To put it bluntly, Effa Manley really didn't care for Branch Rickey. Matter of fact, that might be too soft. She couldn't stand Branch Rickey. (laughs) (laughs) Because she thought that Branch Rickey was going to try to come into the Negro Leagues and raid it of his talent without any compensation. And the reason she thought that was because that's what Branch Rickey was going to do. He was going to come in and raid the Negro Leagues of this talent without compensation. And, And so she was prepared to fight Rickey. Rickey didn't need to fight. Because, you know, you're trying to do this as stealthily as you possibly can, because you don't need the other owners to have a head start in terms of knowing what you're trying to do, because they were going to try to block this anyway. And, and so he backed off. She was prepared to fight it. And she he backs off of Monty Irvin. That's when he turns his sight to Jackie Robinson. And Branch Rickey literally took Jackie Robinson away from the Kansas City Monarch without compensation. And J.O. Wilkinson had been doing this for a long time. So I know that Robinson was under contract. But J.L. Wilkinson could not fight back. You know why? Because J.L. Wilkinson, fellas, was white. There was no way in the world that this white man who had made his entire living in black baseball could stand up and protest what every black person in this country had been waiting on, and that was to see a black man play in the major leagues. If he did, he was damned if he did, and damned if he didn't. And so publicly, Wilkie said all the right things, but privately, you know he was seething. And he wasn't seething because a black man was about to play in the major leagues, but this black man that you're about to take away from me, you about to put me out of business. And he sold his business interest of the uh, with the Kansas City Monarchs the year after Jackie took the field. Because the handwriting is on the wall. It's not a matter of if. It is simply a matter of when the Negro Leagues were going to fold. And it, and, and so when Bill Beck comes to get Larry Doby, Effa Manley was still like, uh-uh. And so Bill Beck decided that he was going to pay her $5,000 for Larry Doby. And Effa Manley understood what was at stake here. She knew she was stuck between a rock and a hard place. This movement was happening now. And you're only going to be able to stand up against it for a little while. And so she writes back a letter and say, well, you know, if Larry Doby was white, he, you would pay over $100,000 for this play." 
And if you think $5,000 is fair, I guess there's really nothing else I can do. And Bill Vag eventually gave another $5,000 and gave Larry Doby a $5,000 signing bonus. What does that do? That now opens the door for the other owners to start selling their star players. Now, you're getting them, though, for pennies on the dollar. You know, I don't know what they paid for Henry Aaron. I think it was $15,000. Can you imagine getting Henry Aaron for $15,000? (laughs) And and so, but that's what the owners did now. It's like, okay, I got to develop and I got to sell as quick as I can so that we can make some money before the business of the Negro Leagues dies. And, And so that's what ultimately happened. So you, you've you've touched on a few of the owners in the in the league, and um, you know everybody knows the the legendary players, but a few of the people that sort of I think fly under the radar, uh, I guess a little bit in terms of their impact on the league, were um, Rube Foster and and Gus Greenlee, and how important they were to sort of keeping things afloat and and getting things started. Um, can you talk a little bit about their their impact and what they really meant to the to the league? Well, Rube is in the Hall of Fame. Gus Greenlee should be in the Hall of Fame. Right. And probably won't because Gus Greenlee was a numbers runner. Right. He was a guy, you know, and so people looked at that a little bit differently. And we all know the numbers ain't nothing but the lottery now. That's all it is. And and so, but Ruth Foster's brilliance, I don't know. You're right. It has not been fully realized and appreciated. Because I honestly think you can make a legitimate case that Ruth Foster is the most influential person in baseball history. Guys, Rube did everything great. He was a great pitcher in the early era of the Negro Leagues. He is credited with having invented what we now know to be the screwball. Back then, it was called a fadeaway. And he perfected that pitch, so much so that the great Major League manager, John McGraw, would sneak Rube into his camp so that Rube Foster could teach Christy Matheson how to throw the screwball. Christy Matheson threw the pitch all the way into the National Baseball Hall of Fame that he learned from Rube Foster. Yeah, but Foster never got credit for it. And then he was this tremendous manager, great manager, and a great executive. So across the baseball spectrum, he did it, and not did it well, he did it great. He could have gone in the Hall of Fame as a player, He could have gone in the Hall of Fame as a manager, and he certainly could have gone in the Hall of Fame as an executive, having established the Negro Leagues in a meeting that took place literally a stone's throw from my office, the Purcell YMCA here in Kansas City in 1920. And and I don't know anybody else in the sport that has had that kind of impact across the spectrum in our game. Branch Rickey, great executive, couldn't play. (laughs) He couldn't play. You know, he wanted to play like everybody else. No, but, you know, Rube did everything great. Gus Greenlee, of course, would save the Negro Leagues. Right after the Great Depression, the Negro Leagues, like so many other businesses, had been harmed by the Great Depression. And Gus Greenlee brings it back. And he creates the vaunted East-West All-Star Classic. Of course, his Pittsburgh Crawfords. And, and Greenlee, had, Greenlee had money. Greenlee had money. And he literally just went across the street almost and got all the players from the Homestead Grays and brought them over to his Pittsburgh Crawford and put together a powerhouse. But Gus Green, the guys, in 1931, 
paid $100,000 to build his own ballpark, Greenleaf Field. And, and so eventually the feds get him and they shut him down, you know, but it doesn't diminish the impact that he had in reviving the Negro Leagues. And then the Negro Leagues would take off really to new heights as we get into the 40s uh, prior to Robinson's breaking of the color barrier. And during World War II, while there were a number of young black soldiers from the Negro Leagues that got called in, the superstar players in the Negro Leagues were too old. So the Pages and the Cool Papa Bells and the Josh Gibson didn't get called in the service, so they're still playing. And fans were flocking to see them play, including a number of white fans. So yeah, so both of those guys are, you know, they are paramount to the success of the Negro Leagues and on two different spectrums, you know, and, and I think there's a movie waiting to be done on both of them, to be honest. Yeah, I, I've always thought Gus Greenlee, particularly, you know, with his impact when he took over or and got involved, um, you know, the Negro Leagues were sort of like treading water at that point. And, and he was able to get them back established. And then down the road, you have integration in baseball. And I've always sort of thought that he was sh- shortchanged in terms of his uh, importance in the historical uh, impact, not only on the Negro Leagues, but then down the road on, on Major League Baseball and the integration as well. And like you said, you know, it's all because the guy was ran numbers. But I mean, you know, down, now everybody's got DraftKings sponsoring everything. So, <laughs> Bob, uh, talking to you is uh, uh, unbelievable. You, there's so many stories. With all the things that you've learned in your time with, with the Negro League Museum, this is probably the impossible question, but is there a moment, is there a game, is there a time that you would like to be at as a fan, a player, or a character you'd want to be around most over your time now knowing the history of the Negro Leagues? And, and, and you're right, Keith. There, I mean, there are times. You know, I think about the story of Satchel playing for the House of David. And for those who will be hearing this name for the first time, the House of David was an all-white religious sect based out of Benton Harbor, Michigan. And they were characterized by their very long hair and very long whiskers. Well, they were essentially trying to mimic David from the Bible. And they would use baseball to spread their gospel, but they play a great role in black baseball because they would barnstorm with and against Negro League teams most notably the Kansas City Monarchs. One of my favorite stories associated with the House of David, 1934, the Denver Post Tournament becomes the first organized baseball tournament to integrate. And the House of David fellas would recruit the legendary Satchel Page to pitch for them. Now Satchel wanting to look like his white teammates. And I tell people all the time, you can't make this stuff up, it's too good. And, and, and so, Satchel wanted to look like his white teammates put on a wig and a fake red beard and would strike out 51 hitters in three games. And the House of David would win the $7,500 prize money. And you can rest assured Satchel got a large percentage uh, of that $7,500 prize money. But it's such an unbelievable story because, but it also shows the showmanship of, of Satchel but also the tremendous talent of Satchel. And, and I would pay to see that. 
And, and many of the stories that I have that I would love, you know, that are on the top of my chart, they seem to always involve Satchel. Satchel was on <laughs> <laughs> You know, Satchel was such a character. I mean, can you imagine the epic showdown between Satchel and Josh Gibson in the 1942 Negro League World Series as the legendary Buck O'Neill tells the story of how Satchel walked the bases loaded to face Gibson and then struck him out on three pitches after telling him what he was going to throw it. You know, and the drama of that, because this is not just any game. This is in the 1942 Negro League World Series. And, and so the buildup behind this, and they've been teammates together and great competitors. They were probably the two best in the business at what they did, pitching and hitting. And the bravado that Satchel had, the mythical-like power that Josh had, it set the stage for one of the most epic showdowns ever. And on this occasion, Satchel beat his good friend. He beat him on this one. But Buck said the very next year, they're playing in Yankee Stadium. And he says Satchel tried to get a fastball past Josh. He said Josh hit the ball so hard that you know how the pitcher goes through his follow-through? Said Satchel never got a chance to come up. Said the ball went right over the top of his cap on a rope into Monument Garden at Yankee Stadium. And as Gibson is circling the bases, Satchel's still down in his follow through. He never comes up. And he looks over at first base. And his nickname for, for Buck O'Neill, Buck's playing first base, he looks over at Buck, Buck and he said, Nancy. That was Buck. Satchel's nickname for Buck was Nancy. He said, Nancy. A fella could get killed out here. <laughs> if, there, if there was a player that should have been alive during the Twitter generation, it's Satchel Page. You know, you see these stories. I mean, there's. I was reading a story about how he uh, he told his infielders to sit down with the bases loaded, and because he was going to strike the guy out to end the game, and they did, and he did. Like it's just that kind of stuff is 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 unbelievable. He, he was made for Twitter. Yeah. And if Satchel was doing this thing today, he'd be the biggest star on the face of the planet, just like he was one of the biggest stars on the face of the planet when he was doing his thing, because he always drew the biggest crowds. Everybody wanted to see the old man pitch. And so if he rode into the town, the town had a thousand people, you could rest assured 900, 950 were there at the ballpark. And, and so when he signs with Cleveland, in 1948, and we don't know how old he really was. You know, most, well, you know, the, the baseball says he was born July 7, 1906, which I absolutely do not believe. The man that died here in 1982, man, he seen 76 a long time ago. Satchel was likely born into the early to mid-1890s in Mobile, Alabama. And, and so when it, when he joins Cleveland, he initially comes out of the bullpen. You know, I guess they were going to try to get the old man, get his legs underneath him. And then he finally, they finally put him in the starting rotation. Now, you remember, he goes six and one with a 2.4 ERA. His rookie season at age 42, which means he could have very easily been 52. Most who knew Satchel believe that he was at least 10 years older than what he claimed. And, and so he comes out of the bullpen initially, and then when they put him in the starting rotation, 
the old man was lights out. They talk about a start that he had in Chicago's Comiskey Park. I think this may have been his second start. And fellas, they got 55,000 people in the ballpark. They had to turn away another 12,000 who couldn't get in to see the old man pitch. And he shuts out the White Sox five to nothing. They go back to Cleveland Municipal Stadium, which was this mammoth stadium. I don't know, hell, 70 plus thousand or so. I think they got 60 plus thousand in the ballpark. They're playing the White Sox again. The old man shuts out the White Sox one to nothing. Larry Doby drives in the winning run. <laughs> of He's course. Running now. You know, and, and if Satchel doesn't do what he did in 48, Cleveland doesn't win the pennant. Cleveland won the pennant by one game. And you can legitimately say that they don't win the pennant without Satchel. And they don't get that chance to go to the World Series and win their last World Series. 48 was the last time Cleveland won the World Series. Now, my Cleveland Indian fans get tired of hearing me say that. <laughs> but that was the last time they won it with Satchel Page and the great Larry Doby. So just one last thing for me. I, I've had the opportunity, and, and we've had the opportunity in Brooklyn to have Jim Robinson – um, who was a, a local guy who who recently passed away, um, come to, to Coney Island and, and, and speak with us and speak with our players about his experiences. And uh, I was reading through uh, one of his eulogies, and he said that there will be few people to uphold our history. There will be less and less people who have firsthand experience, a deep knowledge of its greatness. And when you look at what it meant to us as a people and what I think just in talking with you, I think that's something that we don't need to worry about. <laughs> um, you know, what what you have done with the Negro League Museum um, and, you know, recording the oral history from those that are still with us and those that have, have obviously passed away over the years. Um, it is unbelievable to hear these stories and to see these men talk about their experiences, which are not bitter remembrances their their no, discussions not. of the love of baseball yeah. and they yes. look past all of the oppression and, and all which is mind-blowing to me when you, you think about it but um i just wanted to get from from your perspective just you know the importance of what you're doing and the importance of the museum and the success and and what it means to you just to see how mainstream this has become and getting players you know that are in the major leagues now coming to your museum and having guys like Dom Smith and Curtis Granderson mm -hmm. and, and guys who are speaking out about social issues and what that sort of gives sense of pride it gives to you as someone who's sort of the guardian of, of the legacy here of the Negro Leagues. Tremendous sense of pride, man. It really does. And every time I get a young major leaguer, and I don't care what color they are, that want to come by and visit the museum, it just fills me with great joy. And it never gets old for me because the one thing that we talk about, the bond that they share with players from the Negro Leagues, just simply love of the game. You play this game because you love it. And but as I also share with them, you'll never see a greater example of love of the game than you do when you walk through the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. They had to love it in order to endure the things that they had to endure. So you can imagine the look on the young athletes' faces when I tell them that they could go into a town, fill up 
the ballpark and yet not be able to get a meal from the same fans who had just cheered them or not have a place to stay. So they would sleep on the bus and eat their peanut butter and crackers until they could get to a place that would offer them basic services. But what you have to admire about the spirit of these athletes, and you alluded to it, Billy, they never allowed that set of social circumstances to kill their love of the game. So if I've got to sleep on the bus, and if I've got to eat my peanut butter and crackers, I'm going to keep playing ball. And really, guys, that's the prevailing spirit that you see and feel when you come to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. It's not a sad story. It really isn't. Even though it is anchored against the backdrop of American segregation. But here the story is, out of segregation rose this wonderful story of triumph and conquest. And it's all based on one small, simple principle. You won't let me play with you in the major leagues, then I'll just create a league of my own. And that league would provide a playing ground for some of the best Black and Hispanic talent to showcase their world-class baseball abilities. And so for the players who call the Negro Leagues home, like Jim Robinson, who is so eloquent, Jim Robinson went to North Carolina A&T, you know, and so he was scholarly. And like so many of the other players in the Negro Leagues who have been so misportrayed as vagabonds, tramps, illiterate. And, And so for those players who played in the Negro Leagues and to every, to, to every one of them that I've ever met, not a single one of them ever harbored any bitterness or ill will toward anyone who may have attempted to perpetrate something against them as they were trying to play baseball in this country. And I find that to be in an amazingly endearing kind of spirit because had they been bitter, Well, I think every one of us would have said, you have every right to be bitter. But you could never convince them. You could not convince them, guys, that they weren't playing the best baseball that was being played. Now, the world thought the best baseball was being played in the major league, but they didn't. But they wanted to prove to the world that they were as good as anybody. So, yeah, they inspired eventually to get there. But this aspiration didn't come about until Jackie Brace Culleberry. Otherwise, it was a pipe dream before then. So, yeah, they wanted to prove to the world that they were as good as anyone. But they knew how good their league was. And these were very self-assured athletes. They knew how good they were. So they need validation from anyone as it related to the quality of play in which they were performing. And, and so, to me, that's why this museum is so important. It, it is keeping that story alive. It is saving, legitimately saving, a precious piece of baseball and Americana from extinction. This story, guys, was going to die when that last Negro Leaguer left the face of this earth if it is not for the work that we're doing to keep this story alive. And as Buck O'Neill would say, so that they would be remembered so that they would be remembered for what they gave this game, but more importantly, what they did to change this country. And and that's why this museum is so important. 
We could talk to you for days, days and days. This has been uh, amazing. He is the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City. I can't wait to get a chance to go. Uh, Bob Kendrick. I guess if he's not in his office, you can catch him on 18th and Vine, potentially, if, if he's lucky. Uh, Bob, thank you so, so much. Seriously, you made our day. This is, this is, this is great to talk to you. No, man, it was absolutely my pleasure. And again, for folks who want to learn more about this great work we're doing here in Kansas City, please visit us on the World Wide Web at nlbm.com and, and learn about this great work. I hope you will consider supporting the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum because we want to make sure that the legacy of the Negro League plays on long after there are no Negro League players left to attest to the greatness of this league.